0: Welcome to the January 31st edition of Ukraine Without Hype. I'm Anthony Bardaway here with Romeo Krakratsky Hey, y'all. Before we go on, I just want to comment that if you are one of our subscribers on Patreon, uh, head over there and check out January's newsletter. I made it available to all subscribers, not just the, the newsletter tier. Uh, I put out a kind of a beta test for a video like a put out kind of a test of uh, making video content. It's not too fancy. I just run through the kind of Equipment you bring into the field as a reporter. um, It's mostly there to see, like, to to test the waters of if we want to do certain types of video content in the future. We'll see where that goes. This week, we're not going to be doing news updates, but something a little bit special. Now, before the full scale invasion and things became much more uh, active, uh, a lot of our episodes focused on basically biographies of. Uh, corrupt and otherwise not very nice people in Ukraine to try to give a broader depth to the kind of inner workings of how the Ukrainian system goes. Uh, For most people, when they think about their own country's politics and their own country's news, they can hang it on like, here's this weirdo doing his weirdo stuff. And, inter, and knowing the interactions between the, the groups of weirdos is one good way to understand a political system. So we thought to do that with Ukraine, uh, to kind of personalize it, put names and faces to actual action. Well, it's been quite a bit of time. We are closing in on the second year anniversary of this war. And you wanted to see what our um, rogues gallery is up to in that time. And well, most of them aren't doing very good. Uh, so this will be a bit of a victory lap of the people that we did not like in 2021. So we'll, the list of people here will be a uh, former judge, or kind of current, Pavlo Vovk, Ilya Kiva, Viktor Medvedchuk, Dmitro Furtash, and Arsen Avakov. These are the people who we had actual dedicated episodes for. There were some who were on the list, but we didn't get to because, well, other things came up. So we'll start here with Pavlo Vovk, but back to the episode. Pavlo Vovk. Pavlo Vovk comes from the city of Kramatorsk in Donbass. It is basically the front line right now, and his background is as a judge. Although his career has jumped between like actual judicial work and more into the political sphere. And he really rose in prominence as a uh, associate uh, protege of one Sergei Kivilov. Uh, Kivilov was part of the Yanukovych system, especially in the electoral commissions. So all the nasty little vote rigging that Yanukovych did, a lot of it went through kivalov Pavlovov, as a part of that, was put into the Kiev election commission for 2004, uh, rigging things for Yanukovych then, which led into the Orange Revolution of that year. The Orange Revolution was because it was found out how much election rigging had happened, and they demanded a a redo leading to the presidency of Viktor Yushchenko. Well, as his payment for being a lo- loyal toady of the Yanukovych system, he was eventually ha- made the head of the Kiev District Administrative Court, and this has a long reputation as being perhaps the most corrupt court in all of Ukraine. During the Euromaidan revolution, it was the Kiev district administrative court that gave a lot of the legal rulings that allowed for a lot of the brutal crackdowns that the Berkut police did on the protesters. It was the Kiev district administrative court and Volf who said that the various um, means of repression were actually legal. And with the victory of the Euromaidan revolution, he stayed in place. Of course, many people remembered what he did and very much did not like him because of that. But the process of rotating out these really corrupt judges was a very big challenge that even today is like walking through molasses.
1: So for a a quick kind of history lesson, I suppose, since it has been 10 years since the Maidan, hard as it is to believe, uh, one of the big issues uh, that kind of sprung up in society directly after the Maidan was uh, called lustration. The process of removing these corrupt judges, corrupt prosecutors, and generally corrupt officials. Mostly it was used in reference to judges and prosecutors. Uh, lustration intended to pretty much completely clean out Ukraine's judicial system entirely because the entire thing was utterly rotten from top to bottom. Um, but since the judges are the ones that handle legal issues, it turns out, uh, it's very difficult to get rid of them legally, since they will uh, invariably rule in favor of themselves and other judges. As a result, lustration never really happened. And a lot of the um, incredibly corrupt judges that had uh, lived and worked and corrupted Ukraine for the past 30 years are still in office and, and still in place.
0: Yeah, this was one of our running themes back in the day was how much of a problem the judicial system is. And with Wolf especially, because he was so heavily embedded into that system as, you know, a a direct, directly like in line of command from Yanukovych, he had a lot of allies throughout the judicial system, throughout the constitutional court, the, basically the courts that would be in charge of firing him were also his friends. It was hard to fire him. In many cases, there were people that he directly
1: appointed or that he'd helped get appointed. And they owed their direct job security to him, which is a powerful motivator and incentive to keep these corrupt networks going.
0: Yeah, so what was he up to during this time when everyone knew exactly what he was, but was still stuck onto the body politic? Well, a lot of the various anti-corruption reforms, a lot of the various basically ways of trying to clean up the Ukrainian political system, he was there to shoot them down. Uh, Is unconstitutional to do this or that or whatever thing? Any all these things that were supposed to help out the country were apparently illegal according to Vov. The
1: court that he headed, the Kiev District Administrative Court, became the literal go-to court if you wanted a corrupt ruling. It was not hidden. It was not even an open secret. It was just the court that you filed in when you wanted a corrupt ruling in your favor. Um, a lot of the illustration cases that did go through, uh, especially targeting... Um, Prosecutors, regional and district prosecutors, um, they would very, very often file in the uh, OWASC, the Kyiv District Administrative Court, as it's abbreviated in Ukrainian, uh, because they knew that they would be reinstated. And in fact, that happened repeatedly over and over. Um, a incredibly corrupt uh, prosecutor or high ranking police official uh, who is where, where there's no doubt in their corruption that they took bribes, they have, you know, estates in Europe and they drive Lexuses and luxury cars and who were lustrated would then file to get there uh, to be reinstated. And they were um, in, in many cases. It actually took the wind of the sails out of a lot of Ukraine's police reform uh, because all of these corrupt guys just came
0: back after uh, after a while. And for American listeners, a lot of the times if you heard some story in the media regarding um basically some kind of legal ruling that favored the Ukraine gate scandal that was happening, if anyone even remembers that anymore, um, there were stories of uh, various prosecutors who were acting against Trump's interests um, they were be disciplined in this court basically everything that was happening as a news story that helped Trump's case was coming out of the key of district administrative court uh, telling you how deeply deeply embedded that whole story was into organized crime and corruption but some of the other characters on today's episode are also a part of that so we'll go into it a bit more then but As we're talking about him in episode four of the podcast, this is currently episode 70, so turn back the clock to episode four when we were covering him, the update that we were giving was that the government was trying to fire him to say you are too corrupt to be a judge, especially a judge at this high level, so you can no longer be a judge. And that turned out to be extremely legally challenging. Uh, Firing a a justice is not a straightforward task, especially when he's covered by other justices. To give you an example, of how exactly this network worked um
1: when Ukraine was choosing a slate of candidates to fill the Supreme Court or the Constitutional Court or the highest court in the country uh, there was of course a selection board composed of uh, judges uh, across Ukraine that was supposed to be impartial independent and so on um and it turned out two or three of the judges that were placed on the selection board for the uh, to choose judges for the the constitutional court uh, were directly placed, either directly placed there by Wolf or uh, incredibly close family friends of his, uh, which, of course, raised concerns about how many Wolf judges are now sitting on the constitutional court um, because of this interference and in meddling. Uh, and judging by the fact that he will get into this later, but judging by his current state, it seems his efforts were not entirely in vain.
0: Yeah, so how does it work to fire a judge? Turned out you can't, and instead the government decided to instead, or the presidential administration. It was—it's all very confusing over who's trying to do what to just dissolve the court entirely, that make it so that he may still be a judge, can't fire him from being a judge, but you can get rid of the court that he's a judge in, making him making it so he can't really do anything as a judge. Um, and when we were talking about in this episode, they had just begun that process. And that went through a lot of political back and forth. Throughout all that time, the Kiev District Administrative Court was effectively nullified, but this kind of fight over if you can do that, lasted until December 2022. So that is our update in December of 2022. The full liquidation of the court finally took place. It no longer exists. The most corrupt court in the country was just erased as an entity. Well, like I said, still technically a judge. He still technically draws a judge's salary, although it's not that high. His wealth came from his position in order to make rulings, to take bribes, to do corruption near which he is no longer in a position to do at least not directly at least not directly his network still runs very deep i'm sure he's still being taken care of just fine by his the various links in that network however he is not able to do further damage he has been nullified and his big cash cow is no longer a factor and on top of that he has been sanctioned by the u.s for his many crimes uh, And organized basically a mobster. So he is sanctioned by the US for that, making it so it is harder for him to move around any of the money he was able to steal. I'm sure he still has a very nice house. I'm still he has sure he has very nice things, but there is a very hard roof on that compared to what it was before. So that is the story of Pavlovk. A lot of it comes down to a big story of you know process and legal proceedings and not the most satisfying of endings justice never came from him it was just that he was no longer able to cause damage anymore but that's still good in its own way yes i guess you gotta Uh, take the wins when you where you can get them you know yeah that's the first step the the bad was not punished but it was decreased so our next one on our list is Ilya Kiva. And because I know you have a personal hatred of Ilya Kiva, I'll let you go forward. A few episodes ago, when there was an update on his status, I was very sad that you were not here to tell it yourself. So Ilya Kiva. to shame.
1: So Kiva, who was from Altava, uh, first came up through an industrial company in the region, where he started to make him make a reputation for himself. He worked as an accountant for this industrial company, and presumably that uh, brought him into contact with other Ukrainian officials. And by 2011, he became the head of Poltava's consumer rights department. Just two years later, he was charged with corruption. So uh, while there's not too much details on the early portions of Kiva's life, we can infer that That his position as the chief accountant of an industrial company in Poltava probably uh, let him start building up a nest egg and give him the taste for uh, the corruption that he would so famously be later known for. Following his kind of ban, so after he was charged with corruption, um, he was banned from holding public office for a year, but he didn't really let the ban stop him, which as we go on, you'll note will be a a very common uh, kind of aspect of Kiva's life and career. Um, So he tried to get elected to parliament in 2013, but he didn't. He was not elected. He wasn't very well known yet, um, especially outside of Poltava, and he ran for a seat in Kiev, uh, he he didn't really have much of a reputation, which both hurt and helped him, um, but he started parlaying his experience uh, meeting these parliamentary figures and getting involved into politics um, by uh, signing up with the police. He had finished uh, law school, though, as we'll go into... <laughs> Uh, Again, a little later on his when I say finished law school, please don't take it to mean that he had actually done anything to finish law school, Um, but he did have a piece of paper attesting that he had. In, in, indeed finished law school which is really all you need who, who needs knowledge of the law it was enough for him to parley that piece of paper into becoming a police major um and he was uh appointed as the head of um the Berkut in poltava the Berkut were a prior to the maidan during the maidan they were analogous sort of to the u.s swat they were very uh Heavily armed and armored riot police, basically, whose jobs were to bust skulls and nothing. And through this role, he continued making political connections. He actually became the head of the uh, eastern branch of uh, the nascent uh, Sector or right sector. Uh, again, going back to my Dan days, this was a uh, rather infamous uh, far-right political movement in Ukraine. And given Kiva's later life trajectory, it might be it's an interesting detail, to say the least. Uh, he was even the Uh, representative of Dmitry Yarosh's 2014 presidential campaign. Uh, Yarosh was the head of right sector at the time. And again, when uh, a lot of the stories about uh, Ukrainian neo-Nazis and so on, a lot of them focused on Yarosh's personage, which again, really paints uh not not to go into it, but there is a, a really fascinating connecting thread uh between Ukraine's far-right nationalist movements, the Russian nationalist movements, and so on. Uh, though let's let's keep focusing on Kiva for now. Uh, following his stint as a uh, police chief, he transferred from kind of the regional police to the Ministry of Internal Affairs uh, for our American listeners. In many parliamentary com- uh, countries, policing is not a strictly local or municipal affair. There will be local departments, but there will also be the, the national kind of centralized police headquarters in the Ministry of Internal Affairs. That's one of their main duties is to handle policing. So think about uh, think of it kind of as going from a local cop to a Fed. Not, not exactly, but that's as close as you can get with the American. Uh, When he joined the Ministry of Internal Affairs, he actually joined their anti-narcotics department, uh, which as, and this is not just in Ukraine, but as many people know, vice cops are in pretty much every country in the world. Some of the most corrupt uh, figures of the gendarmerie, because they're the ones who have direct access to dealers and drugs. And obviously it's very easy to, to go into business for yourself when you've got that kind of protection and that kind of access. And Kiva, of course, was not immune to the lore of doing so. He, uh, he actually started, heading the the drug the the anti-drug department in the uh ministry this is already past my dawn ukraine was starting to change and kiva ran into his first obstacle which was police reform as we mentioned when we were talking about wolf just a bit earlier uh police reform did manage to fire pretty much everyone and then rehire them entirely Uh, this didn't stick again, due to the failures of lustration and the fact that people could file in Wolf's court and so on, but it did work for a little. Kievel was caught out for this because he didn't, uh, pass his, he didn't pass the recertification that was required for all, uh, serving
0: police, uh, police members, police officers, law enforcement officials. I actually think he didn't even bother to take it. Like police officers were required to take the. Don't be a literal criminal training <laughs> from HR. And you said, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to even bother to sit through the don't be an actual criminal uh, training video.
1: Yeah. Like he, he, he was a real, he was a real big fan of being, of being a criminal, which is why possibly in 2016, he was appointed as an advisor to the Minister of Internal Affairs at the time, Arsene Avakov. We'll talk about Avakov a little later on ourselves. He's last on the list. He's last on the list. We'll get to him. We'll get to him. Uh, these, these corruption networks are very incestuous and clan-like, uh, and there's plenty of resources and books to read if you want to learn the, the kind of ins and outs and details of how these corrupt networks work in Ukraine, in Russia, wherever you, you go in the world, they, they all function pretty much the same. Uh, to continue on with Kiva, however, um, he attempted to run for president in 2019, um, under the Socialist uh Party of Ukraine. Uh now, if we have any longtime listeners, you may remember um my long-running grudge against Kiva, and this is kind of its genesis. Uh, the Socialist Party of Ukraine. And so Kiva to to track his Ideological development because we're talking about a man who is a complete political opportunist. He has no real ideology to speak of, but he started coming up in ultra nationalist far right circles. And suddenly uh, he's running. He, he was big on anti drug crimes. Uh, he actually said in an interview, we should shoot all of uh, all drug users on site. And now suddenly he's running under the, the auspices of the Socialist Party. The way that happened is that he raided it. Raiding is a term in Ukraine used to indicate the unlawful seizure of a business enterprise or some other kind of communal entity uh, by a unrelated third party. The way it literally works, like in practice, how do you raid something? Well, in the uh, heydays of the 90s and the early 2000s in Ukraine and Russia and in many post-Soviet countries, what you could do is if you had a gang of buddies, and I do mean a gang of buddies, people who are ready and willing to enact physical violence on others, you'd go into some business and you'd start beating up the owners until they gave you the deed. And then you told them to add their names to the ownership lifts for the deed. Uh, Once you did, for the D title, whatever the, the the documents attesting the charter, the documents that attested to the ownership of the center. Uh once you signed it, because again you're being directly physically threatened by these men, uh again, very often they were police officers. So you couldn't really complain to anyone. But they once you'd written their names into these ownership documents, they would go to a court and they would sue uh to uh gain sole control of your business. And because judges like Wolf were incredibly corrupt. They usually would win these cases. And as a result, your company would be stolen pretty much from under your feet. This is exactly what happened to the Socialist Party. There was an interview um, a long time ago with a member of the Socialist Party who was, of course, asked, uh, why are you guys running Kiva as a presidential candidate? And he explained that Kiva went in with his buddies uh, to Socialist Party headquarters and threatened uh, all there to force them to put his name as party chairman and to submit him as their presidential candidate. He even put up billboards. I remember seeing a billboard. Ilya Kiva, candidate of the Socialist Party of Ukraine, uh, like on the road leading from my suburb to Kiev. So uh, this was not like he didn't have to. Hi- he didn't feel he had to hide any of his actions. He could just do things with pretty much impunity. Um, and he wasn't entirely wrong. Uh, though that impunity did end. Uh, it, it did end. Uh, there there is a measure of justice here at the end. Uh, but in any case, his uh obviously his run for president was uh unsuccessful. So he pivoted again and he joined joined the pro-Russian um, opposition party, uh, what used to be Yanukovych's party of regions, was then the opposition platform for life, P- P- forma uh, and did manage to uh, win an MP position. So he did join parliament, where he had, again, a whole host of scandals. Like, he, he's not a classy guy. I hope, uh, I, I haven't really described his, like, personality much. He's a goon. He's just, he's a, he was a goon. Think of a movie depiction of like a sleazy low level like mafia goon who hangs out at the strip club all day and just like throws around money like there's no to borrow Lit- that's literally Kiva one of his scandals in parliament was that he was caught texting a prostitute and touching himself like he in parliament I'm talking about in while parliament. Parliament, yeah, sitting in session like during session in the the pews at Parliament texting prostitute and touching himself so you know. Uh classy, just a real, real cream of the crop, top, top of the Ukrainian elite. Another scandal involved him uh buying a dissertation, uh, which I covered, I believe, in an article uh for Zaborona at the time. But he he was just kind of inundated with, with the scandals, but it, they didn't go anywhere. Uh he wasn't really being prosecuted by anyone for him. Uh, but in uh, 2021, uh, he began taking a very hardline pro-Russian stance. He began justifying, uh, Russia's seizure of Crimea. He started talking about, uh, the need for Ukraine to unify with Russia at the time. This was sort of taken as, uh, Oh, Kiva's just being Kiva." In hindsight, we can tell what the, what, what he was preparing for.
0: When we covered the episode that was in the summer, fall of 2021, uh, and he was still basically just a goon who was part of Op Platform, and his turn happened after that in the winter as Russia was kind of building up its forces and people really starting to call the shot that the invasion was coming is when he really turned on the pro-Russia switch. And thus on February 23rd, Right as Russia
1: is literally invading as they're landing troops in Klostomel, as they're barreling down the radiation-soaked forests of Chernobyl, Akiva starts screaming about how Ukraine's full of Nazis, it needs to be liberated, and just completely turns coat like 100%. This man is unarguably now a traitor.
0: And note that when this happened, he had actually moved to Spain just like two, three weeks beforehand. In January, he relocated to Spain on his way to go to Russia. I believe he was still in Spain when the invasion occurred and didn't go to Russia until later, but I'm not positive on that timeline.
1: Yeah, well, he was um, by March. He had been expelled from even his pro-Russian party because suddenly most platforma MPs discovered that they were actually diehard Ukrainian patriots. Shocking how that worked. Uh, and the prosecutor general charged him with treason uh, for, you know, being a traitor. Uh, But at this time, Kiva was now in Russia. He was stripped of his status as an MP, um, and he just started, like, going all out on uh, anti-Ukrainian propaganda. Uh, He'd start yelling about the need to nuke Kiev. Like the man was the the man just went all all in on on being a total traitor. Um in April he uh personally petitioned Putin to grant him Russian citizenship and political asylum. So it's not clear if his uh petitions to Putin were successful or not, uh but in any case he was freely able to stay in Russia. Uh it's doubtful that he had He was put under any kind of pressure from the Russian authorities uh, for doing so. Uh, He started getting sanctioned left and right. Ukrainian courts started handing out um, in absentia sentences uh, left and right. And he kind of stayed this way, just running his Telegram channel, shit talking Ukraine every chance he got, giving interviews on Russian state TV about how Ukraine's full of Nazis, et cetera, et cetera. We've all heard the propaganda spiel uh, a million times by now. But unfortunately, Kiva's, whatever Kiva's plans or dreams or hopes were for Ukraine's future and Russia's future, uh, he would never see them come to fruition. On December 6th of 2023 of last last year, he was shot to death. Uh, a lot, a lot of times They they shot him a bunch of times uh, The Ukraine's security service The SBU uh, took Credit for literally just assassinating Him, uh, they didn't Even hide it, there was no pretending This man was a traitor to the country Who was living in The aggressor state, uh, Ukraine had All rights to end his life And, oh, and so they did uh, To quote a spokesperson For Ukrainian military Intelligence, Andrei Yusuf, he said said, quote, Kiva was one of the biggest scumbags, traitors and collaborators and said his death was, quote, justice, Um, which I hope by recapping his uh, story here, our listeners can agree
0: with the man was uh, an utter piece of shit, (laughs) Uh, but he's dead now. Dead and gone. Yeah. So that was an interesting arc to his life. Entered politics as this far right Ukrainian nationalist figure ended life as a Russian nationalist. Did he actually believe any of it? Probably not. It was what got him his payday, eventually he had to pay up his debts. Number three on the list, Viktor Medvedchuk, who was probably the most important person we covered. And his story spans from the horrible things of the Soviet Union to the horrible things of corruptioneers in Ukraine to the horrible things of Russia. So who is Viktor Medvedchuk? Well, his father was actually a Ukrainian nationalist. He was a member of uh, the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists and spent time in prison for that. So as a young man, Viktor had a tough time um, working in the Soviet system because his father was a traitor to the Soviet world. And so a lot of his time in education, moving on in life was very much a hard fought battle. And his way of coping with that was to be as loyal to the system as Possible to prove his place inside of it. He became a defense attorney in the USSR in the 80s, which was not a good time to be accused of being a traitor to the Soviet Union or anything like that. If someone was accused of crimes against the Soviet Union, he would be assigned as their defense attorney and purposely threw the case every single time. This happened with several notable Ukrainian dissidents. He was assigned to be their defense attorney and just gave up on the case because, weirdly enough, as Impressive as the Soviet Union was, it was also very procedural. You had to actually uh, convict someone of the crime, at least uh, in the later years. Not so much the Stalin period, but especially in the later years, you had to, you know, go through the motion of sending them to to prison.
1: It was very much like there. There's a going a little tangent here. Uh, there was an episode of Star Trek: Deep Space Nine. Which, for listeners who don't know, was a show set aboard a space station in the future. And in one of the episodes, one of the characters, uh, Miles O'Brien, is arrested is is accused and arrested by the Cardassians, which was a hostile alien race to the the main characters. And the Cardassians pretty much kidnapped him, took them to their home planet. And put him on trial. They refused to tell him what he was charged with. uh, But when he asked for a defense attorney, he was, of course, given one. However, he learned that a Cardassian defense attorney's job is not to defend their client, but to persuade their client to confess to being guilty. The prosecution's job was to show the rest of Cardassian society that guilty parties are always punished. Defense attorney's jobs are to get the uh, accused themselves to admit that they are wrong and the system is right. Uh, that's pretty much exactly how defense attorneys in the USSR worked. Uh, their job was not to defend their clients. Their job was to get their clients to admit uh, that the system, the primacy of the system, that Soviet values, the Soviet world was correct. and they personally sinned against it by committing whatever act the government had accused them of committing, regardless
0: of the truth of the matter. And that was Medvedchuk's role in the Soviet system. And the highest-profile person who he "quote unquote" defended was Vasil Stus. Stus was an artist. He was a part of the movement known as the Sixties, a group of Ukrainian artists who were very politically active and worked to get the concept of you know civil and human rights introduced into the Soviet system. A lot of the time, they were in and out of jail. Um, they're constantly hounded by the secret police but like i said this wasn't stalin times so they weren't like immediately all executed or anything like that but it was a repressive system that they were constantly bouncing in and out of and in 1980 vasil steus found himself being defended by Medvedchuk, and Medvedchuk, of course, threw the case. He told the judge that, yes, my client is guilty, but here's a list of reasons why his uh, case should be maybe treated with leniency. But yes, he's absolutely guilty and throws himself on the mercy of the court. Vasilstu did not want to do that because he wasn't guilty. This whole episode is very complex. There was actually a book about it that came out uh, just a couple of years ago about this, well, Vasil Stuss's life in general, but then also specifically about this incident and went into detail about Viktor Medvedchuk's role in it. And Medvedchuk tried to have this book banned because he didn't want this story of him as a kind of executioner of the Soviet system to be as known, even though all everyone already knew. And, of course, Isil Stuss ended up dying in prison as a martyr for the cause of democracy. So, moving on into the 90s, the Soviet Union has fallen apart, but Viktor Medvedchuk is still a pretty prominent lawyer and is able to... turned that into political power. He grew his network of businesses, became very, very wealthy, and became a part of what was known as the Kiev clan of politics. Now, the clan system has largely dissolved, uh, especially after Maidan but especially in the 90s, the three dominant political clans in Ukraine were the Kiev clan, the Donetsk clan, and the Nipro clan. Though the Kiev clan was uh, kind of eclipsed later on into more of a battle between the Donetsk and Dnipro but still quite powerful. He was named the head of President Kuchma's presidential administration as kind of the concession to the Kiev clan. He was this is a very powerful position. He controlled access to a lot of the executive branch. Kuchma was a very powerful president, and basically in the nineties, early two thousands, all of Ukrainian politics was in relation to Kuchma in one way or another. So as that goes on, uh, kind of Ukrainian politics continues. He becomes attached to the Yanukovych system. He becomes not as much of a direct part of politics as he was under Kuchma, but he was very much a supporter of Yanukovych. he was strongly against Maidan. He has, he, well, he owned, uh, not anymore, but he owned a lot of media properties, and these media properties made their central messaging supporting Yanukovych. And after Yanukovych was deposed in the Euromaidan revolution, Medvedchuk was kind of left as the one to kind of pull all the various um, formerly Yanukovych political system into a new party, the opposition platform. So he kind of became the new leader of the, I hesitate to say pro-Russian party, but Russia-friendly party in Ukrainian politics uh, after Maidan. And also throughout all this, And in a tale right out of a mafia movie, Vladimir Putin was the godfather of his daughter. So in order to pay homage in what is quite literally a mafia system in Russia, he brought his daughter to Putin and Putin pledged to teach her to be a right and proper Christian. And that was the state of play at the time of our podcast in July of 2021. Zelensky was in the process of really cracking down on the oligarchs in general. There was a series of quote-unquote de-oligarchization laws, the most important feature of those said that if you were an oligarch, if you were a political slash business figure who had a certain amount of money, one of those things was you cannot also run a media empire. You cannot also own the news to work in your favor. A lot of it was very funky. You would just appoint a loyalist to run it for you, just keep the messaging going. In the case of one of his television properties,
1: one and two, when he relinquished, quote unquote, control of the one one. media holdings, somehow all the members of the management staff pulled together to quote unquote purchase 112 from from Medvedchuk's direct ownership. The interesting part was that the price paid was purely symbolic and all of these managers had been directly appointed by Medvedchuk and were all close friends of his. So there's a lot of really became an independent news source after Medvedchuk let 112 go.
0: Yeah, that was, I think, the most direct way that they were going after the oligarchs. But also, he was charged with various crimes for doing business uh, with Crimea, by doing business with uh, the Russian occupying forces in Donbass, in Russia itself, in illegal and illegitimate ways. And Zelensky was really going after Medvedchuk as a uh, as a real symbol of the worst of the system they was trying to purge, and also just as a political riot. I mean, that has to, that's obviously a part of it. Uh, Medved and his party, interestingly enough, kind of supported Zelensky in most ways, uh, As far as voting was concerned, uh, the opposition platform voted along with the Servant to the People's, Zelensky's party, more often than Poroshenko's party or the other uh, more Democratic pro-Western parties. That's an interesting thing to keep in mind. But Medvedchuk was treated as kind of enemy number one. And a lot of it was... It seemed like he could have weathered it if he had really dug in, got his lawyers going, kind of thought things off, as a lot of the other other oligarchs did. But in Russia, Putin, one of the theories, one of the theories, I should say, for the invasion and its timing was that Putin was looking at this crackdown on Medvedchuk and his properties as kind of the ultimate symbol that he was losing his man in Ukraine, that He was gradually reaching the point where Putin would no longer be able to control the levers of Ukrainian politics through normal political means, by controlling the right people, by bribing the right people, by having the right people in the right places. That way of indirect imperial control was wearing down if Medvedchuk was no longer in his powerful position as he was. And without the ability to control Ukraine through those means, he was left with more violent means to do so so that's one theory of why the invasion happened when it did now I, I yeah i want to say i don't
1: wholly buy into the theory but reportedly putin did believe that there was nothing to be done in ukraine without Medvedchuk. it was certainly it certainly played a role in putin's thinking and putin's attitude towards ukraine as he saw his uh, man basically <laughs> Uh, lose, uh, lose ground in this kind of fight against fight for corruption. I would say, Medvedchuk was a very pro-corruption kind of guy.
0: Whether this was the case or not, it seemed as though Putin was at least getting ready to put Medvedchuk back into power during the invasion. U.S. intelligence said that um, Medvedchuk was likely to be the person installed as the puppet leader of Ukraine that had been conquered by Russia. Um, Russia would likely have annexed uh, the Donbass entirely, but but then had some kind of a deal in place to leave Ukraine with a, a puppet Reichskommissariat government in charge and with Medvedchuk at the head of it. That obviously did not happen. Um, the system would have rejected that. He would have been assassinated within a week if if, if that was what would have happened. Uh, he was a, not a very popular figure. In fact, within the opposition platform, they knew not to run run Medvedchuk for political positions because he was so widely hated, and why the actual functioning of the party went to Yuri Boyko, um, another uh, kind of at the time Russia-friendly oligarch. Boyko, however, was not quite as much of a public bastard as Medvedchuk, so he was treated as someone more electable and someone who was more able to control a party. So an idea of the country being run by this odious figure uh, would not have worked very well, but nothing that Russia planned worked very well. So during the invasion, he fled house arrest. He was under house arrest due to the various corruption charges and, and all that, uh, charges of working with Russia. He was sentenced to just stay in his house. And no one really knew where he was for a while. Uh, there was quite a few weeks, I think it was not until. The early spring, where they discovered him living in his house, uh, in a um, well mansion near Pertasivyar. Pertasivyar—it's like in this part of Kiev. It's there's a ski hill there. There's a lot of really nice houses around it. But he decided to it's wait the, out. It's a rich part of Kiev. It's a rich part of Kiev. Like and the had- really rich, rich part of Kiev. <laughs> right. And he was staying there. I guess nobody knew where they probably knew where he was. Somebody probably knew where he was, but it took them a while to actually arrest him. So when they arrested him again, it was a pretty big story. He was discovered and I think it was more like some army fatigues or something. He was looking real disheveled, not looking real good Um, and was thrown into actual jail now. And this was a pretty big get for Ukraine because at the time, like I said, he was considered the, uh, Russian puppet in waiting. So if you could get him, you could kind of shut down that plan. So for a while he was sitting in Ukrainian custody until he was eventually traded back to Russia as a. as a deal to get back a lot of the Mariupol defenders. So a lot of the Azovstal defenders, the people who defended the city of Mariupol in that first really big uh, battle of the war, a lot of the people who were captured were then traded back to Ukraine in an exchange for Medvedchuk. Now, this seemed to undermine a lot of Russia's justification for the war, because a lot of those defenders were part of the Azov uh, military unit. Uh, it has gone up in size so not going to nail down his exact determinations but by capturing these as all fighters this is supposed to have been the quote-unquote denazification of ukraine but apparently putin decided that the the denazification wasn't as important as he was saying as it was he wanted his man back because that's how the mafia works you have to be loyal to your lieutenants
1: his wife had to quite literally beg at putin's feet for putin to authorize the the exchange there was a moment there after um, Medvedchuk was recaptured by Ukraine that it seemed like Russia was not interested in him anymore. He would served his purpose, but then there were multiple news stories and a media offensive by his wife within Russia uh, to persuade Putin that, no, you know, my husband shouldn't be abandoned to the Uchra Nazis or whatever they say. It seemed to have paid off, though I'm going to be honest, I really
0: think Ukraine got the better end of that deal. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, Without his empire, he's not very useful to Russia. What is going on now, what he's doing now is that he's the head of something called Second Ukraine. They kind of talk about themselves as the kind of legitimate government in exile of Ukraine or something like that, where it's kind of become the nexus for a lot of various traders, various collaborators, um, people who have who had worked in the occupied territories um before Ukraine was able to deoccupy them. The Russian military left with some 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 you know media figures on the way out and they went back to Moscow joined this Second Ukraine organization where they claim to be the 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 true the true government of Ukraine as opposed to the uh you know the the Nazi western Jewish occupiers of Kiev but it really has done basically nothing uh they tried They opened each- an office in Serbia.
1: They have an office in Serbia. incredibly relevant to Ukrainian politics Serbia let me tell you Everyone walks around here thinking, oh, man, what's Belgrade going to do? What's Vucic saying? That's that's what occupies every Ukrainian's mind all of the time.
0: Yeah, they've tried to bring together uh, Ukrainian traders as media personalities. But the thing with Ukrainians and Russia is that they are not trusted. They are still the Untermensch. So there's only so far even the pet Ukrainians can can go in Moscow. Uh, What happened to Medvedchuk's kind of political empire in Ukraine? Well, the opposition platform political party was banned uh, for being collaborators with Russia, mostly because of Medvedchuk. But the most of that party just kind of reformed. They are now called the Platform for Life and Peace under Yuri Boyko, the more kind of palatable political figure that I mentioned. And their official platform is that they are 100% Ukrainian patriots who support territorial integrity and absolutely repudiate the disgusting figure of Medvedchuk and his lieutenants. Uh, how much of that's sincere? How much of that is dealing with it? A little bit of both. A lot of the people in the opposition platform kind of had a reckoning with what russia actually was and they are sincere patriots now other people might just want to be holding on to their political and uh, business interests and this is how they do it a little column a little column b in as in any given person it could be both so that's complicated i'm not going to look into their souls these lesser known op
1: platform or party region mps uh, they don't have wide business interests in russia or belarus That kind of thing was really saved for the higher-ups, for the elites with these personal connections to Putin, to Lukashenko, and so on. So if all of their business interests, all of their assets and property are in Ukraine, the Russian invasion is a direct threat to that. They don't gain anything by giving all that up and running to Russia, except possibly multiple bullets to the torso and skull, as
0: Kiva well found out. Their families are being killed and killed by Russian bullets. And Russian weaponry of all kinds. So they could just genuinely hate Russia now, along with everyone else. Uh, Moving on to our next figure here, Dimitro Fertash. Can you go over this extremely wealthy oligarch who we covered? So Fertash is, was,
1: I guess, an oligarch. He's still very rich, but I suppose he doesn't have quite
0: the political poll that he once did. Yeah, I think we can pause and say what an oligarch is. We're kind of been leaving it as a given. An oligarch is basically someone who combines both extreme economic and also political power. There is an official definition in Ukraine related to the anti-oligarch laws. In order to have a law, you need to define who it's related to. So in Ukraine, that's also combined with media. But someone who is a super rich businessman who also is, you know, the the minister of something in the government or controls significant parts of a of a political dynasty. So I'm from Michigan in the US. I do consider the DeVos family to be oligarchs because one, they are big business interests in the in the state, but they use those business interests to then uh, sponsor political figures, and then Betsy DeVos herself became the I almost said Minister of Education, the Secretary of Education in the U.S. So I would qualify that as being uh, an oligarch. Since I guess Furtash is no longer um, has the, the
1: political influence he once did, he's not technically an oligarch, but I'll still continue to uh, refer to him that way just for convenience sake throughout this, uh, throughout this section. To be honest, Furtash is kind of the archetypical oligarch. He, he came up in a very textbook way. Uh, in Ukraine in the early 90s. So to, to kind of explain again for our Western listeners who may not be aware, the when the Soviet Union fell apart, every single enterprise, every single business, every single anything was now being privatized left and right, often for pennies, for multimillion dollar uh, enterprises. And I'm literally not kidding when I say pennies. These things were given away like hotcakes uh, by incredibly, incredibly corrupt procedures. Very often there were no procedures. The Soviet-owned factory just turned private overnight. And uh, Firtash was one of those uh, ambitious go-getters that made it their mission to buy up a lot of these enterprises, specifically in natural gas and chemical production and metallurgy uh, and in real estate, which is all Soviet Ukraine uh, industrial strengths uh, back when. And even after the collapse of the USSR, these businesses often didn't directly close. They could still produce physical things that people wanted, especially, especially the fossil fuel industries like gas and oil. So this let, uh, so Firtash's kind of buying spree, uh, allowed him to worm his way into a lot of businesses and, and start building up an economic treasure hoard. Uh, he moved to Moscow, um, though most of his business was in Ukraine. This was not uncommon at the time. Uh, there were practically no borders between Ukraine and Russia, uh, very often, the border guards wouldn't even check people's identifications. You didn't need a passport uh, because there there was the countries were still very economically interdependent. And that interdependent was bolstered by people like Firtash, who would, uh, buy up a lot of these properties and businesses in Ukraine and then spend the money in Moscow because Moscow was still considered uh, kind of the center of the region. It was There was nothing really to buy in Kiev, but Moscow had all the Western accoutrements an uh, up-and-coming oligarch could ever want, which leads us to a little company called Ross Uh So Ross Ukranergo was created in 2004 uh, in a deal between Kuchma and Putin to work as a middleman for gas transit between Turkmenistan and Ukraine. So uh, basically, it would be the the company that mediated the, the sale of uh, the Turkmeni gas, and, and this Turkmeni gas was being exploited by uh, Russian fossil fuel companies, Gazprom and Naftagaz, which is why the deal was between Putin and Kuchma. So after uh, Ross Negro was created, it had to be run by someone. And when we're talking about all these up and coming entrepreneurs and businessmen, I want to make it very clear. uh, These are very thinly veiled references to mafia. The entire business landscape in Ukraine and Russia At in the in the 90s, um, in the early 2000s and started dropping off as you got to the mid 2000s and was kind of dead by my dawn, except for some notable exceptions. Uh, But overall, uh, this was a very, very much a literal mafia Um, case in point. uh, Ross Ukranergo was uh, set under the kind of oversight of uh, Simeon Mogilevich, who is a really rather infamous mob boss. Uh, he is
0: possibly the most well-known Russian mob boss in history. Well, I'll correct you on saying Russian. He came from Kiev, good old neighborhood of Padil, Kiev own Simon Megilevich, the boss of bosses of the Russian mafia. Yeah, all right. The,
1: key, the, 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 the Kiev-born Russian mob boss of Simon Megilevich. Firtash, uh, being in those circles, was one of Megilevich's, Migilevich, uh, trusted partners, and as a result, he was given co-ownership of Ras Ukranergo. Uh This sort of skyrocketed his fortunes. Uh, before, he owned some enterprises here and there, uh, some metallurgy, some chemical, he could sell things, He he had some money, but it wasn't oligarch money. Ross Ukranergo, again, literally the middleman for gas transit between uh, Russia and Ukraine. And on top of that, the middleman for gas transit through Ukraine to Poland and by extension, the EU. This was oligarch money. This was the real money. Uh, And Firtash wasted no real time in uh, using that money to expand even greater control of the Ukrainian economy. He pretty much Bought out all of the titanium industry. Uh, he bought out pretty much every single chemical plant he could find, for uh, bribe or steal. Uh, he really became one of the one of these big figures. He started investing not just in Ukraine, not just in the post Soviet world, um, but in Germany, in Italy, in Switzerland, uh, in Hungary, notably in Austria. And that will become uh, quite relevant in just a moment. And it's also very important to note that during uh, this kind of golden era for Firtosh, specifically in 2008, uh, Feertosh started getting involved with uh, Paul Manafort or was first introduced to Paul Manafort, uh, which for our uh, listeners who uh, may not have the best memories, Manafort's the guy Trump tapped to steal the election. So Firtash was well in his way to becoming a, a real global, a real global figure. Uh, however, all of that um, so empires never last and Firtash's, uh didn't really either. And again, it all comes back to uh, the Maidan when the oligarch era started to kind of fail. Uh, but For Firtash, it wasn't failed immediately. In fact, in February of 2014, uh, the UK's Ministry of Defense sold a metro stop, a sorry, a tube station, uh, to Firtash, who wanted to develop it. Uh, So Firtash was still being treated as a very kind of um, legitimate, uh, legitimate economic figure, despite literally being a gangster. Um, Let's let's not beat around the bush. Dude's literally a gangster. He was involved in uh, Kuchma's administration, just like everyone else was at the time. He literally financed uh, Viktor Yanukovych's 2010 presidential campaign. Um, He was a big supporter of Viktor Yushchenko's presidential campaign. Uh, He he was really trying to show himself as a very legitimate businessman.
0: Legitimate businessman.
1: Legitimate businessman. I am only a legitimate businessman. I'm a Nazi. Um, the post-Mindan era eventually caught up with him. And while he was in Austria, an arrest an arrest warrant issued by the United States was enforced by the Austrian authorities, where he was arrested on behalf of the United States for what the Justice Department calls are charges of international corruption conspiracy. Notably, the Department of Justice mentioned that this arrest isn't connected to events in Ukraine. Um, though. Later reports would cast a little doubt on that. In any case, uh, he was arrested by Austria, but later released uh, after the Austrian authorities determined that the U.S. extradition request had no basis. As I mentioned earlier... Fiertosh had uh, invested quite a mo- uh, quite a bit of money in Austria and had made uh, quite a few connections with the Austrian government at the time it, which is likely why his extradition request was denied. Um he was uh he had eventually under Austrian law at least um beat back uh, all of the charges that the US had accused him of um though the US doesn't recognize that and uh, has sanctioned him for many many, many crimes. Um, Firtash has tried to go back to Ukraine um, multiple times uh, since he uh, has been kind of trapped in Austria. However, uh, even prior to any kind of Ukrainian legal decision on Firtash's status, the Ukrainian border has just not been open to him. Well, In 2014, um, the Ukrainians didn't want Firtash back so much that, again, absent any legal ruling on Firtash's status, Um, or really any charges filed against him, the Pershenko administration literally told the uh, aerospace, like Ukraine's national aerospace regulator, to close the airspace to all private planes the night that Firtash was scheduled to fly back to Kiev. Um, They really, really didn't want him uh, around. So Firtash has, uh, as a result, been sort of, quote unquote, trapped in Austria.
0: So, with in the context of Volk, we talked about how some of these cr- corruption ears were tied into the kind of disinformation campaign launched by Rudy Giuliani, trying to find some kind of information to help out Donald Trump in his legal problems. And as we were talking about before, Vertosh, with his connections to Manafort as being one of Manafort's guys in the country, he was really became one of the central parts of this. In fact, the EU controversy kind of began, I'm not going to put it all on this, but it did sort of begin with Giuliani trying to find information to allow Furtash to fight against his extradition to the United States. So what became Scandal sort of began with this way of clearing Furtash's name, of smearing the people who were his enemies and would have Brought him down, such as Toria Newland was one of his enemies, which is how she kind of became one of the main enemies of that uh, of that disinformation campaign. And as Giuliani and his people were digging around. A lot of the connections that they had in Ukraine were basically Furtash's connections. So when you think Ukraine gate, kind of connect that to Furtash, which is why it becomes extra important to remember that he is a literal mobster with connections to Mikhailovich and Giuliani himself in his New York days. Well, There are some other connections between him and the Russian mafia under Mikilevich. So if you kind of look at the connections behind that whole scandal and a lot of the reason why this podcast was created was to kind of explain some of the Ukrainian context around it, it kind of all goes back to the Russian mafia. Well, why were we covering him? at our time, this was 2021, was he got in trouble for his titanium business, making profit off of some kind of business connections with the Russian occupation authorities and Donbass, and more legal rulings were being brought up against him then, which, like we were talking about with Medvedchuk, can kind of be seen as part of this broader anti-oligarch push that was happening at the time. And what has happened since then? Yeah. But Romeo, what has happened since that time in the Halcyon year of 2021? Well, he's stayed in Vienna. Again, Ukraine doesn't want him back. He's been
1: sanctioned by Ukraine. There are multiple cases looking to confiscate or nationalize many of the businesses that he owns. It's he he has not been having the greatest time for this.
0: Yeah, and the most recent, really big legal case against him is that in 2023, the SBU, the Security Services of Ukraine, especially its Bureau of Economic Security, uh, put together a case against him showing that... He had a scheme of stealing gas from Ukraine's gas transmission system. So keep in mind that he used to be the guy who kind of owned a lot of these um, gas pipelines and his business as a controlling stake in a lot of these pipelines was kind of just taking it. Um, <laughs> the gas that was supposed to go elsewhere, they decided that uh, they would steal it and sell it for their own other purposes. Um So the SBU uh, cited that during the year 2021, this scheme stole uh, 4.2 billion RIVNA. The upper bounds of what this might have totaled up to between the years of 2016 and 2022 could have been 18 billion. Um, So that's quite quite a lot of money of them kind of siphoning off gas to be sold in other ways. And that is a very big deal, especially considering the fact that this is also a strategic industry. So all this malfeasance as the person in charge of gas transit is what's is the main thing that's being focused on now as far as Ukrainian law enforcement and it is not going great there's not been too many updates but legal cases uh, do take a long time and the SBU just put out this um, put out this case last year so I'm sure more will come out about it and I would suspect that every single company that he had a hand in was doing some kind of investment some kind of theft in one way or another so it's only a matter of time of when the authorities get to those for their place in line
1: yeah it's unlikely that fear is ever gonna come back to ukraine or really enjoy any any income from his ukrainian properties anymore though like i said earlier he diversified enough and he has enough business interests all throughout europe and the eu that it's very unlikely that he'll face real justice for the many, many, many crimes that he's committed. Until then, he'll stay in Vienna. One last fun fact about Fiertasch is um, in one of his lawyers' gambits to prevent his extradition, they claimed that he has the status of a diplomatic representative from the Republic of Belarus and as a result
0: enjoys diplomatic immunity from extradition. I did not know that part. So, Belarusian diplomat Firtash is his current station in life. But one thing I do want to comment about him as well is that throughout all of this, we've been talking about mostly his business practices, whereas in a lot of our other rogues gallery, we were talking more about their political uh, actions. And Firtash in recent years has not really shown himself too much about that. Um, Of course, through the Ukraine gate scandal, throughout his Giuliani connections that did become very important in American politics, but in Ukrainian politics he's been away for so long that even not doing any like pro-Russian stuff really. Uh, he's mostly been on the economic side not the business, not the political side. Honestly, it's even likely that
1: his appointment as a Belarusian diplomat didn't come about because of some ideological commitment or anything like this or pro-Russian leanings, it's likely he just paid Lukashenko a bunch. The Firtash is very, very, very classic mafia guy.
0: And we'll be finishing off with our fifth person on the list, Arsen Avakov. Now, he's not really an oligarch. He's rich, but not rich. He's not wealthy. He is an ethnic Armenian, which is interesting to keep in mind considering his connection to more nationalistic forces within Ukraine. And he became a local politician in Kharkiv. He's a Kharkiv guy. That's where he has his his origin story. And while in Kharkiv, Kharkiv is a large part. A lot of people speak Russian in Kharkiv. A lot of people have that connection to the Russia friendly forces in Ukraine. Again, this is how things used to be. Now, Kharkiv is (laughs) not that way at all. You know, being on the front line against Russia again disabuses most of those notions. But in the 2000s, 2010s, It was still largely connected with the party of regions and the more Russia-friendly political forces within the country. And his status as a politician in Kharkiv made him one of the few people who supported the Orange Revolution within Kharkiv city government. He voiced support for Yushchenko, who uh, the revolution was kind of done in the name of. And so when Yushchenko then became the president after the victory of the Orange Revolution, well... Who in Kharkiv is going to serve his interests? And Avakov was on a very short list of people in that position. So now Avakov becomes the governor of the Kharkiv region governors in Ukraine are appointed by the presidency and he goes from being a local politician to a regional politician and now he becomes a pretty serious player within the Ukrainian political landscape because he has basically the politics of the pro-EU type of guy while residing in the what was at the time though again really need to stress no longer the case at the time more anti-European more Russia leaning part of the country and part of the political landscape. He then became attached to Yulia Tymoshenko, uh, the kind of other part of the Orange Revolution, and the conflict between Yushchenko and Tymoshenko kind of spelled the end of the Orange Revolution, we don't need to get into that moment. So when Yanukovych came back into power, um, the Orange Revolution was to kind of, like we were talking about with Volk, done because uh, Yanukovych had rigged the election in his favor, Orange Revolution came, Yushchenko becomes president, and then he the next election Yanukovych comes back on a more pro-European, less obviously corrupt, though he still was corrupt, a kind of button-up kind of platform that he was beforehand. Thanks in large part to, connecting it to Firtash, Manafort. Manafort engineered Yanukovych's return to power. So when Yanukovych returns to power, he begins a crackdown on the people who kept him from the presidency last time, which meant arresting Yulia Tymoshenko, and Timoshenko was in jail until uh, the revolution of Dignity, the Euromaidan, breeder. There was widespread
1: speculation at the time that Timoshenko's imprisonment wasn't actually being driven by Yanukovych, but by Firtash, who was angry that she had interfered in
0: an earlier gas deal. Yeah, they're both gas business people and th- therefore, sure the game was the gas princess. Yeah. So we can, there's so many more layers that we can go into, but just saying that Furtash, Tash as a Yanukovych guy, helped to get Timoshenko in prison due to their uh, business rivalries. And Avakov, Avakov, was, as one of Timoshenko's kind of lieutenants, had to flee the country. He ran away to Italy thinking that he would be arrested next, and that was a very valid fear. Um, The revanche of the Yanukovych system was very repressive, and his own boss, of course, like I said, went to prison. But he eventually came back after he was elected to join the parliament so throughout the Yanukovych years, he is this uh, figure of the Orange Revolution in Parliament. Not a huge one, but like I said, important because of where he's from as an outpost of that of that um, of that movement in the East. Then comes Yuromaidan. Yuromaidan removes Yanukovych and Arsinovakov as this figure who was a Timoshenko guy who had bounced around a lot between his loyalties within the opposition, who was kind of treated as the acceptable um, compromise candidate in order to lead as important of a position as Minister of the Interior, who would, like we said be- before, related to Kiva, is the head of the cops and head of the internal security, their SBU, the police the um, National Guard, etc. So he was an acceptable person to run that position. In that position, he accumulated a lot of political power for himself. In the aftermath of of Maidan, one of the priorities was, as we've covered in multiple ones here, was the rehabilitation of the police to turn them into a less corrupt force, which in many ways succeeded and in many ways failed. And Avakov oversaw both the successes and the failures, um, some of them deliberate failures. We've already talked about the, the failure of corporation. Yeah, we already talked about the failures. To the point where, And also, because he was the head of the National Guard, all of these... Um, volunteer battalions that formed up to fill in the role that the army could not fill during the initial Russian invasion in 2014, he was in charge of bringing them into the government, which means that he had to be very much networked within this system of opposition politics, within this system of a lot of nationalist groups, a lot of civil society groups who supported these units, as well as the oligarchs who initially financed him. And As you can imagine, that is a very Important task that brought him into the, the, like I said, the nexus, a lot of the political changes that were happening in post Maidan Ukraine, to the point where he kind of became a gray cardinal type figure, uh, where he was what he wanted in politics often came true. I think I actually titled one of my articles on Avakov something, something gray cardinal. I think I took that from that article, maybe. I don't. That's just you know, a common phrase for this kind of thing. And one of the other factors in how that worked is that a lot of these national patriotic groups, a lot of these civil society groups who we had connected with through the National Guard were the ones doing protests, were the ones protesting against um, surrendering different things to Russia, a lot of the anti-oligarch protests they were doing. like. A lot of civil society was in the orbit or at least related to these national patriotic uh, groups. I call them national patriotic because they kind of range from kind of uh, liberal through right wing. There's leeway of, of their political ideology there. So he's the one who has a lot of connections to the protesters, and he's also the one in charge of the police. So he's also the ones in charge of putting down protests if they get too out of hand. So in any of these big protest movements, he is the one with his hand on either side of the barricade. He is the one that can bring people out onto the streets and he can be the one to take them off the streets. Around Zelensky's election, not long after Zelensky was
1: elected, um, Zelensky obviously was not that beloved by quite everyone. And there was a very funny scene of... I believe it was right sector, um, or maybe it was, I I think it was right sector protesting, um, in one of Kiev central squares, uh, facing off against, uh, police and and police during these times, they were given very strict orders to basically not do anything unless there is, um, imminent, like lethal violence about to happen. Even minor things like throwing bottles or pink cans, um, which often happens or setting off sparklers. Uh, these things were tolerated in Ignored. They were really uh, very strictly controlled uh, by the Interior Ministry at the time.
0: One protest that I went to at the presidential administration, they they, they lit the, the administration's door on fire and broke the windows. Uh, that which yeah, led to, that. yeah, which led to the police throwing some smoke grenades, and people ran away for like a couple minutes. They went right back, like very, very uh, light hand. At the time, this was actually seen,
1: despite these seemingly opposed powers, at the time, these protests were widely seen as Avakov attempting to put pressure on the kind of newly elected Zelensky administration to preserve his his influence in Ukrainian politics. It it didn't quite work out.
0: During this whole time, however, there was something called the Avakov Chort Movement. Uh, Devil. Avakov is the devil. Um... As you can imagine, not the name you give to a movement that's very friendly to Avakov. Because throughout all these years, he had built up a lot of complaints against him. Um, the police, as we've been talking about, were not fully reformed, and he was seen as someone getting in the way of it. There were several high-profile crimes and assassinations against journalists that he, he did not move on sufficiently, including... Well, most most importantly, was probably the murder of Katrina Hanzuk in Kherson. Um, the killers were caught everyone knew who ordered the assassination the administrators of Pereson but nothing was done against them the phrase was who killed katya with the implication being everyone knows the answer nabokov did not move on that uh, pavel sheremet there was a case of a of a of a, a police officers raping someone it was a build up of complaints that In isolation would not have killed his career because for each of them, something was done in the rape case that that police station was uh, disbanded after people (laughs) nearly burned it down. But that police station was disbanded, but it was seen as part of a ongoing thing of him uh, being a, a political actor who was causing a lot more problems than he was solving and th- there was this demand on Zelensky to get rid of them, which eventually built up 2021 when we did this uh, coverage of him saying that he was eventually removed from office. And at the time, no one had ever been interior minister for as long as him. He was this huge figure in Ukrainian politics that was a big question mark of what would even happen next. There was assumptions that he could even run for president because of how deep his political connections went. But what actually happened? <laughs> What actually happened after our... He went back to Harkiv. Yeah. He just kind of went back to Harkiv and did very little afterwards. Uh, with his connections to some of the far-right movements, the far-right movement basically evaporated immediately after he was no longer there to kind of control it. Yeah. Um, you just didn't see them anymore. The National, Co- the National Corps, I did not see a single National Corps member like in the regalia with, you know, the the, the logo on their jacket at all <laughs> more than two weeks after the removal of Vakov. So that problem was solved as much as foreigners might want to question that. That problem was completely solved by just getting rid of this one guy. The most Kind of recent stories about Avakov at all,
1: and my, he's really kept a very, a, a very low profile um, since his departure from uh, the role of interior minister. Um, the the kind of most uh, the the biggest story that's involved him um, in the years since is the uh, kind of revelation that he may be involved with this very popular Ukrainian Telegram news channel called Trucha. Um, According to uh, an investigation by a um, non-government uh, investigative outlet, uh, they claim that the founder of the uh, Telegram channel may have received uh, some of his initial financing from Avaka. Um has a pretty big Telegram channel. Um Lots, uh, I think, a couple hundred thousand subscribers. It's pretty well known. uh, And Ukrainians do tend to get their news uh, more and more often from Telegram than from traditional media sources. Uh, So perhaps this is a signal that Avakov is uh, trying to maintain a a hold in Ukraine's media landscape. At the same time, True hasn't really done anything that's too provocative or too overtly news. It's a pretty straightforward. A news resource, um, but Avakov himself was actually seen in public for almost the first time since his departure uh, in Kiev last November at the Kiev Security Forum, where he attended a panel alongside um, former Prime Minister Arseniy Yitsinuk. Uh And that's it. That's all. Uh, that's the the latest stories that involve Avakov. He's really been keeping his head down, um, which is surprising since he didn't even surface after the start of the full scale invasion, but. Who knows uh, if one if is to say anything, Vakov is that he is absolutely an incredibly savvy political figure, and it's incredibly doubtful that he has simply resigned himself to living the quiet life.
0: Well, one thing he did do is he wrote a book. Uh, This book is called 2014 Moments of the Kharkiv Spring. It covers the pro-Russian, very, very obviously astroturfed protest movement that tried to overthrow the Kharkiv city government like they did in Donetsk and Luhansk. And the story of fighting against that, the name of Ukraine and the Ukrainian people, with, of course, his own activities (laughs) being highlighted as a reason for why there is not a Kharkiv People's Republic, like there is a Donetsk People's Republic. So yeah, he's around, low profile, but around. Man,
1: I really miss the days when Avakov was like one of our biggest uh threats and, and annoyances and nuances and bastards. Those seem now looking back on them, those those days seem so carefree and innocent. <laughs>
0: Yeah, like, now that we've wrapped up this list, those are our five people, those are updates on them. I'd say my big takeaway, like, look at me at both. Like, that's so procedural, like, so honestly a bit boring to describe to people. And now it's judicial reform is not exactly top billing. And, like, Ivakov, he's a, he was an, he was a character, you know? he, and you could look at oh his little he got his tendrils throughout the system and how can we trace his connection here to uh, this thing happening there put up the put up the pins on your conspiracy theory dartboard like your conspiracy theory uh, corkboard and see how that's working out uh, what's the national core up to uh, what are what's the police doing in this in this region like how does that connect to this thing that happened it's so quaint now. <laughs> like these little stories of internal politics like i said were our bread and butter but even stuff like Kiva who
1: was never a real major player he was always a very very much a two bit goon uh and you know he get shot to death outside a hotel in moscow like didn't really do anything i don't know it's 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 a very I really miss those days is what I'm saying. I really miss those days when, you know, public enemy. Number one, wasn't a genocidal empire bent on my destruction, but like a two bit mafia goon that stole a defunct political party.
0: Yeah. I really kind of, I, I kind of treated Ivakov as my personal enemy as well at the time. Like, like, Oh, I'm going to get you. I'm going to, I'm going to show what you do. And like, in hindsight, it, it, in hindsight it wasn't that big of a deal compared to now
1: well i mean at the time it was worrying but it turns out when you're threatened with hypersonic missiles and genocide other things seem to 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 <laughs> count for less
0: and even with his connections with the azov movement at the time like I'm sure a lot of our listeners kind of understand this background here of uh, them being, you know the heroes of Mariupol, this very effective fighting force among the most effective fighting forces in the country. at the time, there was you know, these the civilian Azov movement that, uh, made up of people who were not part of the military wing. So there's a question of how attached is the civilian wing to the military wing, the question of how much influence Avakov has. Like there are some people legitimately concerned um in after the election of Zelensky and that whole turning that Avakov had like military force behind him in case he was like deposed of in one way or another if these um if Azov if the other um val- formerly volunteer into the national guard units had any actual loyalty to him turned out no not at all <laughs> It, it answered a lot of questions it answered a lot of questions the the war it answered questions about um with Kiva how much these petty criminals if how they could be bought out for um with medvedchuk there was always the question of how pro-russia he really was if he was you know just kind of tilting the political sphere to be more friendly to Russia and less friendly to Europe not now leading a uh would be collaborationist government actively collaborating in the genocide of his own people uh, with bertosh that's kind of a separate thing because they said he's kind of um, as they say away from politics or with Volk, with him gone sidelined entirely but yeah with Medvedchuk, kiva and then avakov there's all these questions of, of the, the political connections that all collapsed into this one central conflict of the survival of Ukraine against a Russia aggression, and who took the side of who, so yeah. for example, the next person on the list that we would have talked about was Burhanov, the mayor of Odessa, who was this really shady mafia guy, likely a Russian citizen was. <laughs> is a shady mafia guy maybe a russian citizen was a pro-russia political figure who then very elaborately said that he would defend odessa against the the russian hordes with his own pistol if need be the shake-up of the ukrainian system from 2021 when we did these profiles to now I mean, it's obvious, it's a big war, things change, but in perspective, it becomes crazy how big of a change that has been internally. And you don't know what will develop from here, because Ukraine, like we covered in our would-be election episode... Ukrainian politics has been in stasis. The political players have kind of fallen into line behind the, the government and all of these local and different power blocks that were part of the country. And were always playing against each other to see who would take over what, have collapsed into the singular system of Ukraine defending against Russia, that's all put on hold until kind of what we said, the return of politics, the return of these individual players who are after their own gain, because a lot of them have been quiet. And I don't think there's really going to be significant upheaval
1: in Ukraine's political scene um, for at least another year. Uh, while the war may last for years longer, uh, sooner or later, people are starting are going to start to get antsy. Um, we know that there are a lot of MPs that really, really want to resign, um, but are. Literally uh, not allowed to under the Ukrainian constitution. MPs cannot abdicate their mandate, save um, if they are convicted of treason, basically the only way for an MPs mandate to be revoked during martial law. Um, so all these MPs are just stuck in their jobs. They can't do anything uh, sooner or later that that uh, all all these like niggling complaints will come to a head. But um, I don't I don't foresee that happening um, in the medium or short or medium term.
0: Yeah, we might do some kind of return to better known better known oligarch but like i said it will not be as weird and crazy as the mafioso that we were talking about today
1: i mean eventually
0: we'll, we'll talk about kolomoisky kolomoisky is a tough one uh but the problem here is that a lot of these people, like we said, everyone's you know supporting the state now. They all end with the story of oh, and now they run this um, charity that supplies blankets to refugees and arms the army. So it's hard to get like the oh, here's this shady guy, isn't so awful and shady? Then end it with oh, and by the way, <laughs> here are the here are the good things he's doing with his money. But well, it's like true.
1: the. the- it's like that uh one guy in the Sopranos that told that told the fed like we might be criminals but we ain't terrorists. There you go. There you go.
0: Anyway, so we'll be showing we'll be ending our episode there. That is our return to the the past and looking forward to the future in this cheesy way i can say that but if you would like to support ukraine as always go down to our link tree to get more resources if you would like to support ukraine politically i again urge you to talk to your congress people and say to get that aid back up because ammunition is at a premium right now and we need that american aid to get it back the battles in the field are going rough without it. so do Whatever you have to do to convince your representative to support the bill. If you would like to support Ukraine without hype and support our work in Ukraine, you can just tell your friends about us, like us, review us, thumbs up, share us. Like I said, we'd be moving into video content, so look forward to that. Maybe I'm going to say two months. (laughs) Uh, We might want to get something out. If you'd like to support us financially, please go to patreon.com slash and join our list of supporters. I'd like to thank our supporters now, so thank you very much to Deborah Grazer. Voices in my head are from Big Farmer, David Shepard, Giorgio, Ivana Krakatskaya, Michael Drucker, Rajesh, and a person, Anonymous, Medikin. So, thank you very much to Deborah Grazer. The voices in my head are from Big Pharma, David Shepard, Giorgio, Ivana, Pokryatskaya, Michael Drucker, and Karen Person. Anonymous, Dennis Napalm, Debbie, Dmitri Litvin, Etienne, James Burke. Jan, Nera, Danny Louise, Evan Alberton, Marguerite, Michael Whitman, Mike Perrone, DLM, Stuldwall, Dallas Frank, T. Bart, Vivek, Adam Poppenheimer, Aiden McDonald, Alex Grochmole, Anastasia, Barbara, Captain Technical, Chris Bennington, Daniel Spring, David Wall, Emily Pavona, Grace Krause, Delaf, Jacob Holm, James Wise, Jared Bradley, Jerd, Julia Lindsay, Gloria DeLeon, Levy Grove, Marianne, Matt Miller, Melissa Gilselko, Anonymous, Noam Hart, Paul Bailey, Annie McNerlin, K. Sander Bongers, Sanjay, Scott Berry, Scott Gengras, Scott Tarkiuk, Steve Bien, Stuart Akers, Subtle Knife, Thomas Sobiak, Veronica, Victoria Leontaneva, Wandering Lens, and First Name. So thank you all very much for your support. And until next week, Slavu Ukraini!